Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 11. I'm going to have an extended introduction, so it's going to be a while before we get there, but go ahead and turn there. Um, I'll say this too, I love the fall, this is my favorite time of year, uh, lows in like the 40s and 50s, highs 60s, 70s, football, I just love the fall. Anybody else fall people? There we go, alright. Alright, so my sermon today is called Faithful in Both Deliverance and Suffering. And what I'm going to do in this sermon also is... I'm going I'm to make an attempt to attack the prosperity gospel, which I think is a terrible disease eating away at the church. And what we're going to see at the end of Hebrews 11 is that this passage absolutely destroys the prosperity gospel, okay? But before we look at the passage, I want to talk about a few things in the context of this health, wealth, prosperity gospel, okay? I'm just going to give these in bullet points, but I want to move quickly because I want to move quick and get to the passage. But I do want to touch on some things. They may seem unrelated, but I'm hoping that you'll start to see how they come together. So I'm just going to knock out some bullet points before we start thinking about what we're going to look at today in Hebrews 11. First of all, Christians are required to believe the entire Bible, okay? This is a problem with the prosperity gospel. In Acts 20.27, and I think we have the slide on this, Acts 20.27, Paul says this, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That means that as Christians, we are required to believe the entire Bible. We're not permitted just to pick out the things that we like and then ignore or throw away the stuff that we don't like. Also, when the Bible appears to be contradictory, one of the things we know is that it is not contradictory. So one of the jobs that we have as believers is using our minds to try to reconcile some things and try to figure things together, okay? That's number one. Number two is this, cults. And false teachers emphasize some truths while completely ignoring others. And this is what makes them actually so attractive because cults and false teachers have some level of truth to them, okay? But their teachings are not consistent with the whole counsel of God. Number three, and it may seem unrelated, but I'm hoping you'll see how it it connects. Suffering can be the result of sin. Suffering can be the result of sin. In, in the next chapter in Hebrews, one of the things we'll, say, we'll see is that the Lord disciplines those he loves, okay? So when we're suffering, this is for us personally, when we're suffering, it's healthy to look at our lives, to examine ourselves and see, am I engaged in some sin that is leading to this suffering? Especially if there's some pattern to our lives with sin and suffering, okay? So suffering can be the result of sin, but, but... This is huge. Please do not examine other people and see people suffering and then assume that there must be some sin there. Okay? That's another thing the prosperity gospel does. Don't be, in other words, don't be a fruit inspector. It's not your job to look at other people and try to figure out some secret sin in their lives. Okay? We can examine ourselves but not other people in that way. So suffering can be the result of sin, but this is number four. Suffering is not necessarily the result of that person's sin. There's not a one, in other words, there's not a one-to-one correlation between suffering and sin. 
God's people living in faith, living by faith, even living lives of holiness, suffer. That's just the way it is, okay? And number five, this is the last one, when we have faith, God sometimes delivers us in answer to our prayers, and sometimes he doesn't, and that's just reality. Now, let's talk about the, I want to talk about the prosperity gospel's favorite passage, and we have the passage. This is from Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22, all right? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So based on this passage, the prosperity gospel folks teach that if you ask something of God in genuine faith and you have no doubts, then whatever you ask for, you're going to get with no qualifications. So if you're, and also if you're suffering or you're poor or you're handicapped or you have some emotional problem or you're going through some strife or you have cancer or whatever, that means you don't have real faith. Or that means you have some unconfessed sin. So that's what Jesus is teaching right here, right? That, that, that if we have faith and we get every single thing we ask for with, without qualifications, right? That's what he's saying. Well, if he's saying that, then we have a problem, and here's why. Because in Luke 22, in the garden, Jesus knows that he's about to go to the cross. He knows that he is about to experience immense suffering. And in that moment, he prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. He prayed it three times, Father. In other words, he was saying, Father, do not let me go through this suffering of going to the cross. He prayed that. The Father did not deliver him from that. Okay? So that means Jesus lacked faith, right? According to the prosperity gospel, Jesus lacked faith or he had some unconfessed sin in his life, right? You see how blasphemous this is? That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. So how do we reconcile Matthew 21 where Jesus says you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer if you have faith? How do we reconcile that? We reconcile that because the unspoken assumption that Jesus gives in Matthew 21, and it's this way for all of God's people, is this. Not my will, but your will be done. And that's how Jesus finished his prayer in the garden. Not my will, Father, your will be done. So what biblical Christianity says is that I can ask for anything from God. As long as that's not sinful, I can ask for anything. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. So we can say, Lord, heal me, right? Fix this situation, please, Lord. And, and, and I have faith. I, and, and the doubts are this. I have no doubt, Lord, that you can do this. I have no doubt about it. But, Lord, you're not my bellhop, right? You're not my slave. And if you don't give me what I'm asking for, I still love you and trust you. And I know you have good reasons for everything you do. So, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is what biblical Christianity looks like. But cults... And false teachers don't like nuance because cults and false teachers don't teach the whole counsel of God. In fact, cults and false teachers hate the whole counsel of God. There's a picture. I want to get you a picture in your mind. And I read this passage this week. It's, it's from Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah has received the word of God and he speaks the word of God to a scribe. And the scribe writes it down on a scroll. 
Then they take the scroll and they go and read it to King Jehoiakim. Anybody remember this passage? They read the passage to King Jehoiakim. And it's, it's a passage of judgment. And Jehoiakim does this. He's sitting by a fire. And every time something is read, every time three or four columns of the scroll are read, King Jehoiakim does this with a knife. He cuts the scroll off and he throws it in the fire. He keeps on just cutting the word of God and throwing it in the fire. And that's what cults and false teachers do. They burn the word of God. And in my view, as I said, I think one of the most wicked and horrible false teachings out there is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel teachers cut parts of the word of God out and they just chunk them in the fire. Because the prosperity gospel says this. If I have faith, then I won't suffer. If you have faith, you won't suffer. If you have faith, you won't be poor. If you have faith, you won't be handicapped. Your kids won't have problems. You won't have problems. If you have faith, you won't have emotional issues or mental issues. You won't die from cancer, right? If you won't die from heart disease. If you have faith, you'll be healed from everything. And if you are ever going through any of this stuff, if I look out and see any of you people suffering, then you know what I know? You don't have faith. And you've got unconfessed sin in your life, okay? That's obvious. So it's a formula, okay? And if you think that I'm exaggerating, I want to show you a horrible clip, okay? It's very short. I'm not going to make you suffer much of it, but I'm going to show you a horrible clip. I think it was from this week or last week. This is from a sermon, and this is, uh, this is the reason I'm sh- making you suffer through this stupidity is because I want you to see that this is real, okay? So guys, if y'all have the clip, show it. You know one of the largest expenses we have in buildings? The amount of handicap parking and handicap accessibility that we have in our churches. Now let me make you mad for a minute and I don't really care. Why is it you pull up to a church that says they operate in faith and you have 50 handicapped parking spots? Ain't nobody laid hands on them handicapped folks yet. I don't care what Twitter says. You can get mad all you want to. Fold your arms, stick your lips out, pooch them out. I don't care. I'm so unafraid of what anybody in this tent thinks about me right now in my life. I could care less. We, we just expect that people are going to leave church the same way they came to church. We ought to start having some signs out there that don't have, you know, like, like handicap accessibility, people in a wheelchair. We ought to start having signs of a wheelchair laying down and somebody just walking up. Well, Pastor, I think you're being insensitive. I think you just don't have any faith is what I think. So if you're handicapped, you don't have any faith, okay? Now, I'll say this. I don't care what he says. He crosses his arms or sticks his lip out. I'm going to say this. That's a false teacher. And his group is a cult. That's what that is. That whole prosperity gospel is demonic. This type of faith, because this type of faith has crushed so many people and has actually shipwrecked people's faith. There are countless suffering people who have listened to clowns like this guy, and they haven't been healed. And what is their assumption? They go and they ask God, they're not healed, and what is their assumption? They think, my faith is not real. God hates me. So think about this. Not only are they suffering with this misery, but they're listening to clowns like this. They're suffering, going through suffering anyway. But now, this guy adds on to their suffering. 
by telling them that they don't have faith or they have some sin in their lives. And I've known people that have dealt with this. Johnny Erickson Tata, if you know her, she's in a wheelchair. She has dealt with this. So this false teaching is just everywhere, and it just is adding on misery and burden to people, and it's false. So these clowns, one of the comforting things is clowns like this are going to have to stand before God and give an account. And and it's going to be scary when they do, because if they don't change, they're going to hear Jesus say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's what they're going to hear. This cult of prosperity gospel, again, it says, if you have faith, you're not going to have any of these problems. You, you won't be poor. You won't suffer. They have this formula, right? They have this formula that says, if you have faith, then it's guaranteed that you're going to prosper in your health and wealth and everything else. And the thing is, here's the, here's the thing is, we're all tempted to fall into this false formula, especially if we're suffering. Now, as I said, we should look at ourselves. But don't think that simply because you're suffering, God hates you or you lack faith or anything like that. But we are tempted to do this. Jesus' disciples, you remember this account? Jesus' disciples, they passed by a man who was born blind. And they go to that man and they look at him and they say, okay, Jesus, this guy was born blind. So who sinned? Him or his parents? We know it was one or the other. Had to be. It's a formula. He's suffering, therefore, either he sinned or his parents sinned. And what does Jesus say? He says, neither. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's not a one-to-one correlation here. What Jesus is saying really is, stop believing the lie of karma. You know that? That prosperity gospel is much more like karma and Hinduism than it is Christianity. The fact that someone is suffering does not mean that they lack faith or they have some unconfessed sin in their life. In fact, the whole book of Job, what's the point of the book of Job? To show that Job, who is the most righteous man on earth, suffered tremendously. That, there's, that there is not this formula or this karma, right? That's not Christianity. So here's the thing. Faith does not mean also that we believe things will also be, always be wonderful in this life. That's not faith. Faith is not the power of positive thinking. Faith has an object. It's God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And real faith said, yes, Lord, please heal heal me, help me. Nevertheless, not my will. And even if you don't fix this, I'll still love you and trust you because I'm living for you. I'm living for you, not the stuff you can give me. Okay? That's what the Bible teaches. All right, I could go on, but let's get to Hebrews 11. And what I want you to see is this passage absolutely destroys the prosperity gospel. Okay, because it shows that God's people, even living by faith, can suffer. All right, so we're called to be faithful in both deliverance and suffering. I know I've had a lengthy introduction, so I'm going to go through the passage pretty quickly, but it's a wonderful passage. So Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. Hebrews 11, 32, and we're going to go through the first part of 35, and you're going to see a transition in the verse in verse 35. I don't want you to really pay attention to that. But let's look at Hebrews 32 to 35 first. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. 
So here's what the writer's doing. He, he is, he has been, he's been giving us these portraits of faith. So picture this. It's like going down a hallway in a museum, okay? And there are these portraits on the walls. And he's been showing us these portraits of people living by faith. So Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And now we get to these and he starts speeding up a little bit. So he's showing us these portraits of people living by faith and these events, okay? And so we're walking down this hallway looking at these portraits in a museum. And the wonderful thing is what we'll see in Hebrews 12 is the very end of the hallway is the Lord Jesus. That's where everything is going forward to, the Lord Jesus, okay? So all these portraits of faith. So look at verse 32. He said, what more shall I say? This is a rhetorical advice. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel the prophets. So first Gideon, very quickly. Gideon led an army in a victory over the Midianites, and he did this by faith. At God's command, Gideon reduced the size of his army from something like 32,000 men down to a very small group of like 300 men. And then the we- what were the weapons that he had? You know what the weapons that he had were? Trumpets and pitchers concealing a torch. That was his weapon to fight this massive army. And yet God did it. God defeated this army through Gideon, through Gideon's faith. Next is Barak. Barak obeyed the word of the Lord as it was given through Deborah. And Barak met met and defeated this huge army led by Sisera. Although Barak's army was completely outnumbered, he led this little group by faith to victory, and it was a very important victory for Israel. And he did this again through faith. Samson is next. Now, normally, I'll confess, when I think of Samson, I think of a complete knucklehead, right? This guy allowed lust and greed and everything to control his life. And yet, underneath all that foolishness, there was faith. He trusted the Lord. And in a great act of faith, at the end of his life, he killed more Philistines than he had and, 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 and defeated God's army or God's enemies in a big way, through faith. So Samson had faith. Jephthah is next. He's another guy who does not look like a hero of the faith because he made this foolish vow, you know this story, to sacrifice his own daughter. And yet he was a man of faith. He was an outcast, and yet he was called by God to save Israel. And he did this through faith in the Lord. Then David. David is another one, a very flawed character, right? Sinner, murderer, committed adultery. And yet through his faith, God used him to defeat Goliath. And then as king, David began establishing the kingdom of Israel. So God used David in a big way. Samuel the prophet is mentioned next. So we come to this portrait. So we're seeing these portraits. Remember as we go down this, this hall. Samuel was a man who was called by God even when he was a little boy. And he was faithful in delivering God's word. And even, he even confronted wicked King Saul. And he was faithful in delivering God's word boldly. So again, Samuel was in many ways a flawed man, and yet he trusted the Lord. So verses 33 to 35 says these people, says through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. I think we see all that. It also says stop the mouths of lions. I think he's referring to Daniel in the lion's den here. Daniel had faith in the Lord. And although he was thrown into this den of these hungry lions, by God's power, Daniel escaped and he was not harmed at all. So God delivered Daniel through faith. Verse 34 says, quench the power of fire. I think this is probably referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar. We're actually going to look at them at the very end of this. Yet God saved them 
through faith. Escape the edge of the sword. So escape the edge of the sword. You can think about David when he was running from King Saul. Saul was after him, and yet David escaped the edge of the sword. Also, the prophets Elijah and Elisha were oftentimes chased by people like Ahab and Jezebel, and yet they escaped. They escaped the edge of the sword. It said, we're made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So all, we've seen all that. Verse 35 says, women received back their dead by resurrection. So this is the first part of 35. We're about to see a transition here. But I th I'm thinking of like the widow of Zarephath who had a son who died. And Elijah prayed for this boy. And Elijah, if you know the story, stretched out himself over the boy. And by faith, this dead boy came back to life. God gave this boy life. Elisha did something similar with a Shunammite woman whose son had died. And Elisha acted by faith. And God heard his prayers and brought the boy back to life. So all these passages, all these accounts as we're going down through this museum, seeing these portraits... All these are wonderful victories that happened as a result of people living by faith. And what this teaches us is very important. It teaches us that we need to be people of faith. And in moments of crisis, these are all moments of crisis. I've talked about that before. We need to cry out to the Lord and trust him and ask him to deliver us from these things. There's nothing wrong with that. God can do that. And so we need to be people of faith and prayer. And as we're walking down this corridor of faith, just remember these examples of God giving these wonderful victories. So we should cry out to the Lord and trust that he can do anything to save us, right? So we, we, this should encourage us. And yet, we still pray, nevertheless, not my will, but your, be, your will be done. Now, in the middle of verse 35, there is a huge transition. And this part, from now until the end of the chapter is the part that I said absolutely destroys prosperity gospel. Look at the middle of verse 35, this big transition. But notice this. I want to clarify something. Look down at verse 39. It says, and all these, though commended through their faith, all the, all the ones he's going to talk about, including the ones we're just about to discuss, who suffered, all these were commended by God for their faith. Okay? Who are the ones that are commended by faith? Not just the ones who had the victories. Who are the ones who had true faith? Let's read verses 35 on. It says this, by faith, right, 35, some were tortured. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. By faith, they were tortured because they knew that they were going to rise again to a better life. A better life compared to what? I think he's talking about the first part of that verse in verse 35 when it says these women received back their dead by resurrection, right? So these boys came back from the dead to a sort of a resurrection, but not an eternal resurrection. They died again. But he's saying that some of God's people were tortured and they refused to be released. So they said, go ahead and torture us and kill us. We're not denying God. And they did this by faith. Again, because they knew they were going to rise again in the resurrection life to come. Verse 36. And remember, all these were living by faith, right? Verse 36. By faith, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. So they were mocked. They were made fun of. They were beaten, flogged, put in prison. 
and yet they were living by faith. God did not deliver them from these sufferings. They were people of faith, and they suffered. Verse 37 says they were stoned. I'm thinking of people like Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who was stoned to death after giving the great confession about the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen had great faith. And I'm sure Stephen did not want to die by stoning. I'm sure he prayed that God would deliver him. And yet God permitted Stephen to die a horrible death, even though he was living by faith. Next phrase, they were sawn in two. Tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two by a wooden saw. Okay? This is a great man of faith. He was sawn in two. I'm sure that Isaiah cried out to God to save him from that. I don't know if very many people had more faith than Isaiah. Read the book of Isaiah. This is a man of faith. And tradition says that he was sawn in two. He suffered. He suffered. Next phrase, it says they were killed by the sword. They were killed with the sword. This is important because look back at verse 34. It says they escaped the edge of the sword by faith. And here it says by faith they were killed with the sword. See how that's important? You've got two groups of people who are living by faith. One escapes the edge of the sword. The other is killed by the sword. Both of them were living by faith. The different outcomes were not based on their faith or lack of faith. The different outcomes were based on God, on his decision. As I said, the prosperity folks hate this passage and they ignore it. Next group, what does it say in the next passage? Do, do these, does this sound like people living their best life now? Listen to this. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute. In other words, they were poor, abject poverty, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So despite their faith, these people suffered miserably. They were poor. They were afflicted with disease or illness or other problems. They were abused and mistreated. Many of them never even had a home. And yet, it says that they were faithful to the Lord. In this world, everybody wants victory all the time, right? We want victory all the time. We want unending joy. We want pain-free life. We want stress-free life. We want nonstop fun. And listen... There is joy to the Christian life, right? There, there is people that are committed to Christ experience a joy that is deeper than their circumstances. But even when we live by faith and trust the Lord, that doesn't mean that we're guaranteed a pain-free life. Living by faith does not mean we will never suffer. And we see that, again, in this passage. And what God is telling us here in Hebrews, and he said this repeatedly in the book, is that God is calling us to have an eternal perspective. To fix our minds on heaven, not on the things of this world. We see that again in verse 39. Look at it. And these, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive what was promised in this life. Since God had provided something better, something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So these people were commended by God because of their faith. They had an eternal perspective. They knew that they would not receive everything promised in this life. It's the same for us. We will never receive all of God's promises, God's ultimate promise while we're on this earth. 
the ultimate promise that we have is heaven. Seeing the glory of God, seeing the unveiled face of Christ. It says, since God has provided something better for us. God has provided something better, namely heaven, the resurrection life to come, the new earth, the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. When it says at the very end that it says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's a double negative. It's kind of confusing. But apart from us, they should not. So it, it's saying Old Testament saints will be made perfect or will be made complete with us. It means on this side of the cross. In other words, no one's salvation prior to Jesus in the Old Covenant was complete because he had not yet come. It was only after Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. It was only then that God's people could have their salvation be made perfect or complete. All right, so that's the passage. I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to just say this. When we live by faith, when we live by faith, God may decide to prosper us, right? And there's nothing wrong with asking God for victories in this life. There's nothing wrong with asking God to relieve us from suffering. We should do that. And and we can ask that by faith. And we should ask God to heal us. We should ask God to solve our problems, to do miracles on our lives. That's fine. That's wonderful. Bless us with good health and, and to bless us financially or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. We can ask for those things by faith. At the same time, when we're living by faith, we must truly believe that the most important thing in this life is not whether I get everything I want. The most important thing in this life is the glory of God, the exaltation of God. The most important thing in our lives is whether we're showing that God is amazing or not. Are we showing by our lives that Jesus is awesome? Are you showing that by the choices you make in your life, that God is glorious and awesome? That's what it means about the glory of God. Are you showing by your life that that he is first priority in your life? That's the most important thing. Not a fun-filled life, not a pain-free life. It's the glory of God that matters. When we live for him, when we trust him, when we just love being in his presence, when we love reading his word and hearing him speak to us, when we love being with the people of God, right? God is glorified in that because we're showing that, that he is awesome and glorious when we're living for him. Now listen, is God glorified when he heals us? Yes. Is God glorified when he answers our prayers and relieves us from, from suffering? Is, does God get the glory in that? Absolutely. He gets the, the glory when he relieves us from suffering. But, and this is where the prosperity gospel fails, God also gets massive glory when we're going through suffering and we remain faithful to him. Because when we're going through suffering, we have a platform to display the glory of God. When we're suffering, we get to show what matters most to us. And it's, it's not the stuff that God gives us. It's God himself. Isn't it true? Think about this. Isn't it true that God gives, gets massive glory when his people are suffering? And yet in the midst of suffering, they can say, Lord, I love you. I trust you. And my faith is not contingent on you giving me everything I want. I love you no matter what happens. Even if I'm going to suffer tremendously. God, I love you and I trust you. Doesn't God give massive glory in that? To saying, Lord, even though I'm really hurting right now, I'm going to continue to trust you no matter what. And even if you don't relieve me of this suffering, I'm going to continue to love you. Because as David said, your steadfast love is better than life. 
Doesn't God get huge glory when we say this? To live as Christ, right? To live as Christ means ministry on this earth where I can serve Jesus. To live as Christ. But to die is what? Gain. To die is gain because it means being with Jesus forever. As it says here, God has provided something better for us. And that eternal life can never be taken away from us. God is glorified in that attitude of faith. An attitude, again, that has an eternal perspective and continues trusting God even in the midst of immense suffering. Justin Martyr lived from about 90 A.D. to 165 A.D. And he was in a debate with a a guy in Rome, and he defeated this guy. He embarrassed this guy. And this guy went and, and told the Roman authorities, he accused Justin and his students of being atheists. In other words, of not worshiping the gods of Rome. And under the authority of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Justin and a number of his students were seized, tried, and flogged. And they knew, Justin and his students knew that they were going to be killed. And Justin said this to his students, brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. They can kill us, but they can't hurt us. A short time later, Justin and his students were beheaded. God did not deliver Justin and his students. But wasn't God glorified in that? Doesn't God get the glory in that when people are faithful even in the midst of suffering? When they remain faithful to him. Even if he doesn't give us the stuff we want, right? We're going to go through suffering. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're going to go through suffering. You may be going through terrible suffering right now. We're going to go through suffering in this life. And in moments of crisis, God may deliver us and give us the outcome that we want. And oftentimes he does that. Look at your life and see how many times he does that. A lot of times we forget that. God may deliver us and give us the outcome that we want. But he may not. We don't know. That's not up to us. It's up to him. And if he doesn't deliver us, one, that doesn't mean that we lack faith or there's something wrong or that he hates us. And remember, when we're going through suffering, we have a massive platform to display the glory of God. You know, you know when people remember what people say the most on their deathbed? Those deathbed statements when they are going through this immense suffering. And in people who give a, a wonderful testimony about their faithfulness to Jesus, that, they have a platform in that moment, don't they? It's a platform, and it gives glory to the Lord. I'm going to leave you with, with two passages to think about this, how we can trust the Lord. So even if he doesn't give us what we want, we can trust him to be with us, right? We can trust that he loves us, he's going to be with us, and he's going to sustain us as we go through suffering. Two passages, and I want you to see what it looks like for people of God to remain faithful, even when we don't know the outcome, okay? The first is from Daniel 3. And I mentioned this, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Yeah, we got it up there. King Nebuchadnezzar was furious at these guys because they would not worship his idol. And in a rage, the king threatened to throw them into a fiery furnace. And the king said to them, he said, If you refuse to worship the golden image, then you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And he said, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Somebody's going to deliver you out of my hands. And here's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered. Now notice this. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know if God was going to deliver them or not. But they didn't care. They didn't care. It's the same for us. We don't know whether God is going to deliver us out of everything. But we're called to remain faithful. This is what they said, and I love it. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I love this. We have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't even need to answer you. 
If this be so, in other words, if you throw us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, in other words, even if God does not deliver us from this suffering and death, if not, we don't care. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. You can kill us, but you can't harm us, right? That's real faith. It's not faith that everything will work out okay. That's not faith. It's faith in the Lord. Faith that that they knew God loved them and that God would sustain them through everything. And that's what I want for us. Here's the last one. I'm just going to read it. Very little comment. And if you're going through suffering right now, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this moment and strengthen your faith. It's from Habakkuk chapter 3. The context is this. Habakkuk knew that judgment and misery were coming. He knew suffering was coming. He knew it. And yet listen to his response. This is the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. This is real faith. It says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, if everything's gone, Lord, you take everything away from me. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's real faith in God. Rejoicing in the Lord no matter the circumstances. And that's what I want for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these heroes of the faith as we walk down this hall and look at these portraits of people of faith. And they're heroes in one sense, God, but many of them are not. And that's what's encouraging to me. People like Samson had real faith. So even though our lives can be a wreck and our lives can be marked by just sin and weak faith, and yet it's real faith, Lord. It counts, and you're not going to abandon us. And I pray for folks who are suffering that they would not believe the lie that there's some one-to-one correlation between suffering and sin. God, I cannot imagine the hurt of people who are not only suffering, but then they listen to false teachers who tell them that they're suffering because of their lack of faith. God, I pray for folks right now who are suffering and going through trials that you would encourage them and that they would say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they would say with Habakkuk, no matter what, Lord, we're going to be faithful to you. We're going to love you and live for you. And it doesn't matter because we know we have eternity. We know on the other side of the grave is resurrection life, is heaven, is your is the unveiled presence of the glory of Jesus Christ. So help us to remember that, Lord. Help us to have an eternal perspective. I do pray for my friends who are suffering. I pray you'd relieve them of that suffering, God. We pray that by faith. And yet, even as we all go through suffering, I pray that we would be people who are committed to you, Jesus, and unwavering in that commitment, and that you would get the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.